This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. Hello, my name is Christopher Johnson, reporter at CityWire Wealth Manager. I had the opportunity to speak to David Oloshoga, OBE, British historian, author of Black and British, A Forgotten History, broadcaster, presenter and filmmaker. We discussed the British Empire and its legacy on the UK's financial services industry, as well as the need to widen knowledge around the contributions of black and ethnic minorities in Britain. So I'm joined with David Oloshoga. Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to me. My pleasure. So in your speech, you talked about the ways in which um, you know, financial in- instruments were created to commodify slavery. So what is the legacy of this on the modern, on modern day financial services now? Well, we have to recognise that uh, slavery, the slave trade, the sugar business, the other ancillary businesses, built around what historians tend to call the Atlantic economy, was a vast injection of wealth and capital into Britain, and that's true of other countries. And that financial capital, that wealth, um, lives on. It lives on in multiple organisations and corporations. It lives on in the precursor organisations of banks, insurance companies and other firms. And a lot of companies are recognising that at this moment. There's a lot of work co- going on where companies, I mean, very big companies like Lloyds of London, are investigating their own history. And they're doing this because I think they, they recognise that this is a moment to acknowledge rather than deny those histories. Okay. And something that interests me a lot is, you know, we're seeing kind of the world economy shift from west to east. And when we look at China, we look at India, the way they relate to the UK, the way they see us is impacted by colonialism. So how do you think they're going to maybe treat us or deal with us going forward, especially as kind of the balance of power shifting towards them and away from us? Well, I think we have to recognise that those nations, like all nations, have their own national interests, and sometimes they will misuse history as much as I think sometimes countries in the West misuse history. So it's not the case of uh, of, of them always sort of being uh, in the right about this. Yes. And history can be manipulated by anyone; it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what they're which part of the world they're in. But I think you know, putting politicians aside for a moment, I think there is a growing recognition among uh, young people, in particular in India, in the Caribbean, and elsewhere, of the nature of British imperialism and I think that those conversations about Britain's relationship with other peoples as well as other nations around the world they're being changed by this sort of this historical awakening I used the example of Shashi Tharoor's 2015 speech to the Oxford Union that went viral amongst young Indians um, who want to have these conversations about the two centuries of British rule whether we want it or not whether we are comfortable with those conversations or not they want to have them and how do you deal with the fact that these conversations are becoming, you know, weaponized? You know, we have talks about the woke and so forth. When we have a movement which is, in a way, trying to restrict these conversations, how do you deal with maybe trying to convince people or helping them to actually understand why these histories, it's important to engage with them? 
Well, I think if you turn off the background chatter of politicians and journalists, the conversations I hear are much, much more serious and much more committed to these issues. That's, this is a political weaponization of, uh, of a moment where some politicians see opportunities for division yeah. and the building of electoral coalitions. What I see in companies, corporations, institutions that I talk to is a much more serious engagement with these ideas where people aren't using the stupid pejorative woke. They aren't, <laughs> they aren't looking for division. And I think this is partly because the time scale of politics, the event horizon of politics compared with business are completely different. Politicians in this country are thinking about the next election, two years' time. That is, that is the end of time, as far as they're concerned. Any company whose event horizon ends in two years has no future. Companies have to be scoping ahead, decades ahead, generations ahead. Yes. And I think the reason why you're having a much more serious debate within the corporate world than you are within politics, which is somewhat ironic, is because of that time scale. Politicians are playing an electoral game that has a short time scale. Businesses are thinking about the long term. Who are going to be our future workforce? Who are going to be our future employees? Who are going to be our future managers? What is this generation that is going to be running our organizations in 20, 30 years' time? What are their priorities? What are their uh, interests? What are their demands? Politicians are playing a very different, frivolous game in comparison. And, you know, obviously we're seeing what's going on in Ukraine and Russia's invasion of that country. Um, but we're also seeing, from, in my opinion, almost a discrepancy in how maybe refugees from Ukraine are being treated in comparison to African migrants, um, Syrians, Muslims, you know, coming to the West. So how did these ideas that were formulated in the 18th, 19th century being played out in how we're viewing this new refugee crisis? Well, the first thing to say is what's happening in Ukraine is a war crime and a, a crime against humanity. Absolutely. And uh, I have nothing but sympathy and uh, support for the people of Ukraine and everything they're suffering. But I think the question is not really for them, it's the question is for us. We've had two wars in recent years, both of which involved Russian aggression and Russian war crimes. The war in, U in Ukraine today and the war in Syria. Both have been characterized by the indiscriminate bombing of civilian areas and it looks like the game plan of Syria, the destruction of urban areas by artillery, by aerial bombardment, is going to be deployed in Ukraine. And I have nothing but horror for that eventuality. But I think that does make it difficult not to compare the treatment of Syrian refugees and Ukrainian refugees, uh, people fleeing from the same air force, the same army, the same weapons. And I think anybody looking at that honestly would say that we haven't in any way ever opened up our borders, opened up our hearts to Syrians the way we have to Ukrainians. What's been shown to be possible in just two weeks because of what's happened in Ukraine didn't happen in 10 years mm -hmm. in Syria. And I think race is an issue. I think religion is an issue. I think the idea of Europe versus the rest of the world uh, is an issue. But I think that to try to pretend that there's no disparity, I think that's just demonstrably untrue. Yeah. There is a disparity, and we are willing to do things for Ukrainians that we weren't willing to do for the people of Syria. And what do you think about the role of journalism in that? Because I'm not sure if you've seen you know, clips of journalists who say that you know, this is Europe, yeah. this is a civilised nation. You know, how are we you know, continuing to perpetuate those ideas, and what should we do to ensure that that doesn't happen in the future? Well, journalism, both print journalism and television journalism in Britain, is one of the many areas that's failed on diversity and inclusion. Absolutely. We haven't got senior people in television news and in, in, in newsrooms in the UK from minority backgrounds. Uh, there's been a profound, catastrophic failure of inclusion within those industries. So I think you get the sort of commentary from an industry that is not inclusive, that is not diverse, that doesn't understand the communities, the worldviews of non-white people, non-European people. Mm -hmm. So I think this is... 
this is what happens when you have non-inclusive industries given incredible, the, the incredible voice and importance of journalism. Journalism's failures as an industry matter more than other industries because of journalism's responsibilities to our society. And, you know, even yesterday I was, you know, speaking to somebody at an event and they asked me, you know, where are you from originally? Although, you know, I've grown up in Essex all my life. I'm obviously British. So when we come to terms with, you know, these histories of um, empire, you know, what benefits do you think that Britain can take from them in order for us maybe to kind of create a unified identity where we can all, you know, fit in and be included? Do you think that is a way of, you know, creating that identity by actually being able to understand these histories? Well, I mean, we were talking earlier about our, yeah. our, our prospective backgrounds, your ancestors, some of your ancestors are Jamaican. Yes. Jamaica came into England's orbit in 1655. Mm -hmm. It was captured by Oliver Cromwell. From the Spanish. From the Spanish. Yeah. Now, the union between England and Scotland didn't take place for another 50, 50 years. Yeah. So the it's island crazy. that some of your ancestors are from has been, has been part of England and then Britain's sphere of influence for longer than Scotland. Yeah. No one would say, well, you're Scottish, you're not really, not really British. This idea that Jamaica somehow doesn't, uh, doesn't count as a form of Britishness, I think is only possible if you don't know the history. And when mm -hmm. I ask people, when do you think Jamaica became a British colony? They'll say the 19th century. I ask them when they think Barbados came into England under England's control. They'll say the same. 1620, 1650, these parts of the world have been intertwined with British history and British power for 400 years. Not knowing that is what creates this, this, this rejection. When people got off the Windrush, they encountered people who did not know who they were. Mm. didn't understand the histories that connected them to Britain. If you don't know who people are, where they've come from, why they're here, what their stories are, what their linkages between their stories and your stories are, then you haven't got a chance of being able to relate to one another. I and mean, how do we bridge that knowledge gap? Well, I'd love to see changes to the curriculum. I'd love to see mm -hmm. a curriculum that actually works for the country we are rather than some sort of 1950s imaginary Britain, which is what the curriculum seems to speak to. Um, but I also think we can't rely on politicians, as I mentioned earlier, or changes to the curriculum. I think we need to do it ourselves. And there is a long tradition in this country of black people teaching their own history, creating their own schools when they had to. Pan-Africanism. Um, yeah, we have Black History Month, which I think is one of the greatest achievements of the black population in this country. Mm -hmm. It's often derided, but it's a national event. We are 3.5% of the population population every October we, we, we kind of we run the calendar it's an amazing <laughs> achievement and we talk it down too often yeah but I think we also need to tap into the willingness of young people to see these histories as inclusive histories young people they seem to get that these histories are their histories you don't need to be black to care about the colonization of Nigeria or the conquest of Jamaica by Oliver Cromwell mm -hmm. these are our histories black history is British history imperial history is British history and these barriers that made people feel that things weren't about them or for them or that they were too squeamish or to confront dark sides to history I think they're falling apart David, thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to us. This is a brilliant conversation. Thank you, my pleasure. Thank you. That was David Olashoga speaking to us from Citywide Wealth Managers Conference and Awards. Stay tuned for our next episode. This Citywire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk.